On this last day, let me take occasion to thank uh, Dr. George, who I know can't be here, and for the, to the faculty and to the administration for inviting me and giving me this remarkable privilege to speak to you in the Reformation Heritage Lectures. So it's been my high honor to be here, and I'm deeply thankful for that gift. Someone asked me why, why you did Calvin first and Luther second, since that's out of chronological order. The reason had to do with the substance rather than the chronology. Yesterday was, was the portrait that I think both of them would share of being mastered by the majesty of God. And today I'm going to talk about what we learn from Luther, and I could have done the same thing, I think, with Calvin concerning the way they worked and the way they studied. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I ask for your help now to pack into these 55 minutes or so what you would use most powerfully in the lives of those who are here. So please come and give me your guidance, fill me with your Holy Spirit, grant me a kind of prophetic insight that can penetrate through barriers to encourage the downcast and to sharpen those who have grown dull and to motivate some who have begun to let their hands drop loose and their knees wobble and grant that our minds would be sharpened and that we would be inspired by Luther to give ourselves to the study of the Word as never before. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Heiko Obermann, whose biography was most helpful to me, said, what is new in Luther is the notion of absolute obedience to the Scriptures against any authorities, be they popes or councils. That's what's new. Luther, in 1539, commenting on Psalm 119, wrote, In this psalm, David always says that he will speak, think, talk, hear, read, day and night, constantly, but about nothing else than God's Word and commandments. For God wants to give you His Spirit only through the external Word. It's a remarkable phrase for Luther and becomes very crucial the external word, meaning we have a book. God speaks to us through a book, an external, objective, grammatical set of sentences in Greek and Hebrew, the book. The immense implication for pastoral ministry for Luther and us is that pastors are essentially brokers of the Word of God in a book. It's transmitted in a book. We are readers. We are teachers of what's in a book. We are proclaimers of what's in a book. We mediate the living Christ through the written Word. We avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit for understanding the written Word. We transform lives by means of the Spirit through the written Word. We are a book people, and that book took on extraordinary proportions in the Reformation for which we should be deeply grateful. So, so my question for Luther is, what difference did it make in your life that this book so mastered you? 
And yesterday it was being mastered by the majesty of God in the book. And now I'm eager to get down to the nitty-gritty of daily interaction with the book and ask Luther, so how did you handle the book? And I want to learn from him as a pastor how to handle the Word of God, the book. That's where we're going today. And I have a conviction that Luther's conversion dictated how he handled the, the book. It flows from his encounter with the gospel and how he encountered the gospel. It became utterly crucial for Luther that he handled the book in the way that the book gave him life. And so let's go to 1518. Actually, the story that he told was much later. He told it in the preface to the complete edition of Luther's Latin writings. But this happened, he said, in 1518. So Luther dates the awakening after 1517, which is interesting. So I'm going to read the key passage, the most familiar passage probably in Luther for his conversion. And here's what I want you to watch for as I read it. Watch for the implications for study. There are about five of them. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to custom and use of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live, and there... I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. Here, a totally other face of the entire Scriptures 
showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through all the scriptures from memory. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. And thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. I think that experience and how he entered paradise governed his handling of the Bible for the rest of his life. Just, I'll point out five or six things that relate definitely to his study. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for the understanding of the epistle to the Romans. I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. That place in Paul was for me truly a gate to paradise. Let let that land on you. That place in Paul, that word, those grammatical structures, that Greek, was paradise for him. He would not be able to comprehend anyone who put study over here and paradise over here. Experience of God over here and rigorous dealing with Greek and Hebrew over here. He would have no categories for understanding such a person. It was that place which was a door to paradise. What doors will you open for people? So let me break this down and give you five, or do I have six? I think I have six marks or characteristics of Luther at study, studying his Bible. What did he do and what can we learn? I want to learn from this man. I want, I want to be inspired for the last chapter of my life so that I don't slack off so many pastors begin to carve ducks in their basement. Because it's just gotten old. I pray that I will burn to understand that place in Hebrews, that place in Ecclesiastes. Give myself to it and then open it for life as a door to paradise for my people till I die. I hope I never coast. So I want to learn. I want to be inspired here by Martin Luther. Number one, Luther came to elevate the biblical text far above all commentators and all church fathers. 1533, he wrote, For a number of years, I have now annually read through the Bible twice. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. 
He who is well acquainted with the text of Scripture is a distinguished theologian. And then he said something about the fathers. The dear fathers wished by their writing to lead us to the Scriptures, but we so use the fathers as to be led away from the Scriptures, though the Scripture alone are our vineyard in which we ought to do all our work and toil. And then he said this. This is so relevant for the 21st seminary at Beeson Divinity School with stacks and stacks of books being assigned to you to read besides the Bible. The Bible is being buried. This is Luther talking. The Bible is being buried by the wealth of commentaries. And the text is being neglected, although in every branch of learning they are the best who are well acquainted with the text. Oh, I would encourage teachers, assign fewer books. Much reading makes fools out of people. Deep reading makes wise people out of people. I mean this deeply. I taught college for six years. I assigned one or two books and how we read them. Give me the page, the paragraph, the sentence, and the conjunction on which you're basing that opinion. That's the way we read our books. We didn't just go flying over books and check it off. I read the book. That makes fools out of people. We must give ourselves to deep, solid reflection. Anybody who reads only in a chair with his feet up and no pencil and no pad, just guard my language here, is making a mistake. <laughs> I think Dr. Ladd was wrong when I walked into his office one day and he was stretched out on a couch reading. And I said, you read like that all the time? This is George Ladd at Fuller Seminary. And he said, why stand if you can sit? Why sit if you can lie? And my, my answer today would be, you can't think lying down. You can't take notes. You can't stamp your feet. You can't shout. You've got to interact with what you're reading. That, that, I don't know what he would have said to that. <laughs> he wrote a pretty good theology. I'm concerned about the, the much reading outside the Bible and the much reading period. The number, this is, this is Luther, the number of theological books should be reduced and a selection should be made of the best of them. For many books do not make men learned, nor does much reading, but reading something good and reading it frequently, however little it may be, is the best practice and makes men learned in the Scripture and makes them pious besides. Obermann says, Luther came to his great discovery with increasing accuracy by living with the God of the Scriptures. So my first observation is that for Luther, the Bible was elevated so far above commentaries, theologies, and the fathers that he gave himself 
to it above all things. I so plead with you. I know from experience and I know from observation, pastors do not study their Bibles. They read Piper and other such books, which is a colossal mistake. Read and study your Bibles. You don't know your Bibles yet. Could you give an exposition of Ezekiel? Could you give an exposition of Ecclesiastes? Secondly, this radical focus on the text of Scripture led him to an intense and serious grappling with the very words. The very words. He said, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring what he wanted to know, what he wanted to say. In the summer of uh, 1526, he was lecturing on Ecclesiastes. And he wrote this, Solomon the preacher is giving me a hard time as though he begrudged anyone lecturing on him. But he must yield. So do you go to the text like that? Like Jacob and the angel. I won't let you go until you yield. You've got to preach on Sunday and it's Friday. And you don't get it yet. You will wrestle like Jacob. Or you'll be a storyteller. A lazy storyteller. It must yield. That's your work. That's your job. You will beat importunately upon that text. Number three. Therefore, he gave himself to Greek and Hebrew with tremendous diligence. The original languages for Luther were the gateway to paradise. I'm now going to encourage you not to make light of Greek and Hebrew. Luther spoke against the backdrop of a thousand years of darkness. He said, it is certain that unless the languages remain, and he means Greek and Hebrew, unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. Do you inquire what use there is in learning the languages? Do you say, we can read the Bible very well in German? And then he answers, without languages, we could not have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contains the sword of the Spirit. If we neglect the literature, we shall eventually lose the gospel. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages than Christendom declined, even until it fell under the undisputed dominion of the Pope. But no sooner was this torch relighted than this papal owl fled with a shriek into congenial gloom. 
In former times, the fathers were frequently mistaken because they were ignorant of the languages. And in our days, there are some who, like the Waldenses, do not think the languages are of any use. But although their doctrine is good, they have often erred in real meaning of sacred text. They are without arms against error, and I fear much that their faith will not remain pure. The main issue for Luther, you can hear, was the preservation and the prizing of the gospel. Where, where the care with the languages goes down, precision in biblical thinking will go down, care for precise observation will go down, and concern with truth will go down, because it must. We have no tools to treat it otherwise. You cannot have a burden for the precise meaning of the text if you have thrown away the gateway to the precise meaning of the text. Therefore, there is spread abroad in church planting, in church growth, a gradual and now epidemic neglect of the Bible. And of course, if you neglect the Bible, and therefore it's opening no gate of paradise, producing no power, no passion, which compels anybody to come to church, you must replace it. And we have many replacements, and it bodes ill for the church. I don't care if the church has 20,000 people in it. It bodes ill for the church. Come back in 50 years and see what those churches are believing. He said, If the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in the obscurity of a cloister. The Pope, the Sophists, and their anti-Christian empire would have remained unshaken. One more quote. It is sin and shame not to know our book or to understand the speech and the words of our God. It is a still greater sin and loss that we do not study languages, especially these days when God is offering and giving us men and books and every facility and inducement to this study. You'd think he had known computers and desires his Bible to be an open book. Oh, how happy the dear fathers would have been if they had our opportunity in the 16th century with Erasmus's text open before us, and that's all gold. We have Bible works and logos. Oh, how their effort puts our indolence to shame. Before I leave this point, just one word of encouragement for those of you who are far along in the ministry and do not have the languages and don't see the opportunity to go back. Although, frankly, I'm, I'll be 60 in January, and if I, if I didn't have the languages right now, I think, I think it would be a wise thing to ask for a sabbatical and go study Hebrew at age 60. I believe that. 
So if you're 40 and discouraged, just think of a 20-year project to get it back. But my, my word of encouragement is, if you believe that you're called to be Billy Graham, namely, have a great impact without the languages, then at least make a test of your faithfulness to the Word of God this. Do you encourage seminaries and young pastors to promote, learn, preserve, and teach the languages? Or are you so insecure in your ignorance that you must protect yourself by saying to many that don't really matter that much, and so you don't need them in the seminary and you don't need to study them because you're just protecting yourself? It's a beautiful thing when a person who lacks a gift praises the gift in others. Number four, he worked now on this very wording in Greek and Hebrew with extraordinary diligence in spite of tremendous obstacles. He makes pygmies of us all. This is a great danger of having heroes, right? Like Spurgeon or Calvin or Luther or Edwards. They make pygmies of us all, and so you can be paralyzed by these guys. Well, try, try to get beyond that, because they are worthy if we take them for who they are. We are not Luther. Nobody in this room will ever be close to a Luther or a Calvin. But the question is, can we be inspired by them to work hard, to really work hard and, and give an account someday to the king that we did our best with his word? Or are we slothful and casual about it, as though nothing really, really great is at stake? Here's, here's Luther laying into pastors in his day. Some pastors and preachers are lazy and no good. They do not pray. They do not read. They do not search the Scriptures. The call is watch, study, attend to reading. In truth, you cannot read too much in Scripture. And what you read, you cannot read too carefully. And what you read carefully, you cannot understand too well. And what you understand well, you cannot teach too well. And what you teach too well, you cannot live too well. The devil, the world, and our flesh raging and raving against us. And therefore, dear sirs and brothers, pastors, preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. This evil, shameful time is not the season for being lazy or sleeping or snoring. End quote. Luther. The household sweat is great. The political sweat is greater, and the church sweat is greatest. So if you don't want to sweat, you're in the wrong school. Go get an MBA. Fifteen thirty two. A person should work in such a way that he remains well and does not injure his body. Huh. Luther, Luther. 
What a hypocrite you are. But he knew he was a hypocrite, and that relieves you of the burden of hypocrisy. He said, a person should work in such a way that he remains well and does no injury to his body. We should not break our heads at work and injure our bodies. I myself used to do such things, and I have racked my brains because I still have not overcome the bad habit of overworking, nor shall I overcome it as long as I live. <laughs> oh, he's not a hypocrite. He's just a fool. And we praise God for him. He lived 63 years. He outlived Calvin by nine years. I mean, his age was nine years longer, but 63 years as a young, that would give me four more, three and a half more. Paul, the apostle, would he have spoken like that? I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God, which is with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten without number, often in danger. I think he would. I think he would. Better to burn out than rust out. You have to decide how many days off you need and I think a pastor should have a Sabbath, and it isn't Sunday. You should. The Sabbath principle is, is smart for kingdom purposes. So unwind, brothers. Unwind. Play Scrabble with your wife. Take your 10-year-old to Pizza Hut. Rake some leaves and read a good biography. What? Yes. Whatever. <laughs> Number five. Temptation and affliction are the hermeneutical touchstones of his labor. In other words, we handle the Bible and come to know it by the hermeneutical key of suffering. He got this from Psalm 119, as you know. Here are the key verses that he was so shaped by in his thinking. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Then verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. That was so key for Luther. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn. And oh, how he wanted to learn what Paul meant. So bring it on, Pope and devil. Listen, listen to what he says. I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I have practiced this method for myself. Here you will find three rules they are frequently proposed through the Psalm 119 and run thus, oratio, meditatio, tentatio, prayer, meditation, trial. 
They teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's Word is. It is wisdom supreme. And then in his own inimitable way, he said, For myself, I owe my papists many thanks for so beating, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have made of me a fairly good theologian, driving me to a goal I should never have reached. Oh, what a life of suffering Luther knew and how it opened the Scriptures to him. I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther, said Charles V. My kingdoms, my dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, my soul against that man. That's the emperor talking. In other words, it would have been legal in the empire for anybody to kill Luther. How'd you like doing your ministry in Birmingham under that if the governor had said anything to get rid of this man? That's the kind of work, the kind of pressure he lived under. Relentless slander. I don't know if anybody's ever been slandered more than Martin Luther. The language in those days, of course, was going back and forth vicious on both sides. If the devil can do nothing against the teachings, he said, he attacks the person, lying, slandering, cursing, ranting at him, just as the papists, Beelzebub, did to me when he could not subdue my gospel he wrote that I was possessed by the devil and was a changeling and that my mother was a whore and a bath attendant. Physically, I read you some of Calvin's struggles. I mean, anybody who lived before 200 years ago had horrible stories to tell physically, right? Most of ours are so concealed behind doors, nobody knows them because of, they're in hospitals. They didn't have hospitals. I nearly gave up the ghost, he said, talking about the effects of his incapacitating constipation. I nearly gave up the ghost and now bathed in blood can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately tears open again. For more than a week, I have been thrown back and forth Listen to this emotional turmoil. Back and forth in death and hell, my whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. But because of the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me and tore my soul from the depths of hell. You think you're an emotional wreck at times? Join the company of the interpreters of the Bible. Tentatio, anfechtung, trial, suffering, the key to understanding the Bible. Let this encourage you. Let this encourage you. You, you think, you, you know, we read these guys and we think they are beyond uh, ordinary human power and never struggle with the things I struggle with. Listen to this. 
This is Luther. He's supposed to be hidden away, working night and day like a hero on the translation of the German Bible. I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling, alas, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this, I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I am a fire in the flesh with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. It is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days, I have written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied, partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap. That's his physical problem again. I really cannot stand it any longer. Pray for me. I beg you, pray for me. For in my seclusion here, I am submerged in sins. That's our hero. And it made him a theologian. Those sufferings, those trials, those blank days, those seasons when you want to sit down in the grass between the garage and the back door and just say, I just can't move another step. They make a theologian of you. Just don't quit. Breakthrough. Wait. Wait for the Lord in the hour of darkness. I... I uh, carry around little pieces of paper because my memory is no good anymore. And I read my Bible in the morning and I write down lifesavers for periods in the day when everything grows blank. Listen to this one. Isaiah 50 verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Are you in one of those seasons? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. That's not the way it should be. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's not supposed to be this way, but it is from time to time. It's reality. It makes a theologian of you if you break through, if you endure, if you don't throw in the towel and shack up with your secretary and make shipwreck of the faith and throw the church away and let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So, trials were the hermeneutical key. I have one more. Number six, I think, unless I missed one, is the role of prayer in his study of the scriptures. We've seen the role of suffering as a key. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn, learn, learn. Before I leave that again, I just got to give you one other illustration. Just Suppose you're sitting in your study, you're working hard on a text, you're beating on a place in Paul, James, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, you're beating on a place, you got work to do, you got deadlines, and there's a knock at the door, and there's some kind of crisis. 
Do not begrudge this. This may be God saying, I have an insight into that text for you. It's at the hospital. Go there. That, that is the way it works. It does work that way. I have a way to open this text for you. Just trust him. Trust him. Get something for that text from this unexpected, painful, undesirable moment. Now I'm done with that point, I think. Unless I think of something else to say about it. Number six. Prayer and reverent dependence on the all-sufficiency of God. In typical paradoxical way, Luther seems to undo in this paragraph I'm about to read to you everything I've just said about study. Listen to this. That the Holy Scriptures cannot be penetrated by study and talent is most certain. Therefore, your first duty is to begin to pray and to pray to this effect, that if it please God to accomplish something for his glory, not for yours or any other person's, he very graciously grant you a true understanding of his words. For no master of the divine words exists except the author of these words. As he says, they shall all be taught of God. John six forty five. You must, therefore, completely despair of your own industry and ability and rely solely on the inspiration of the Spirit. Which I take to mean that he did not walk away from the external word. He did not walk away from his Bible into the Zwickau prophecies and just kind of stop and want to vibrate with something from God and then deliver that on Sunday morning. That is not what he means, and that is not what he did. He means bathe your study in prayer. As you beat with your brain on the place in Paul and with your commentaries and with your Greek and your grammars, as you beat, pray, pray, pray. I I wonder... I am so prone not to pray that I try to develop ways to remind myself to pray. If you were to walk into my study in my house, there's my computer monitor, and pasted on top of it, just scrawled in hands, is, Help, Lord. Help, Lord. I see it over and over again. My eyes fallen, And I say, help, Lord. Don't let me make a mistake here. Don't let me give this verse a wrong twist here. Don't let me justify myself in my exegesis here. Don't let my pride, my sin, my lust, my fears, my anxieties get in the way of a right understanding here. Oh, God, help me. There are people waiting. I want to be a faithful shepherd to feed them. Don't let me give them poison You pray like that continually, say as you're writing or outlining every few lines, help, Lord, help, Lord. Pray. He saw this in um, Psalm 119. Listen to these prayers. Here's how you should pray over the Scriptures. 
Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 27, make me understand the way of thy precepts. Teach me, O Lord, thy ways. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe thy law. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Verse 37, revive me in thy ways. And that's just a sampling of how the psalmist prayed over his study. You should completely despair of your own sense of reason, Luther says, for by these you will not attain the goal. Rather, kneel down in your private little room and with sincere humility and earnestness pray God through his dear Son graciously to grant you his Holy Spirit to enlighten and guide you and give you understanding. I condemn and reject as nothing but error all the doctrines which exalt our free will as being directly opposed to this mediation and grace of our Lord Jesus. Here's what I'm closing with. Luther's doctrine of prayer and practice of prayer was rooted in his Reformation vision that the will is in bondage and its only hope is divine grace. It's so in bondage that it can't see the meaning of Scripture that is really there. It can't savor the meaning of Scripture that is really there. And therefore, we must have grace, and prayer is the echo of our bondage and God's grace. That's the way the human heart, when it is awakened by grace, responds. I am in bondage to my pride and my fears. I will distort every text I take in hand in self-justification unless you help me. And therefore, prayer is rooted in a theology of human nature and divine grace. Luther said that his book, The Bondage of the Will, was the only book that he thought worthy of publication. So if you wonder, you know, what really made Luther tick? What was the root of his Reformation concern? He would say, Erasmus gets it. Namely, the issue is the helplessness of the human will. Erasmus writing on freedom, Luther writing on bondage. You want to see Luther's understanding of the real bottom issues it wasn't primarily indulgences, and it wasn't first justification. It was whether the human being can do anything to get himself justified, can do anything to get the favor of God. And Luther believed we can't. I'm reading now. For since apart from Christ, sin and death are our masters, and the devil is our God and prince, there can be no strength or power, no wit or wisdom by which we can fit or fashion ourselves for righteousness and life. On the contrary, blinded and captivated, we are bound to be the subjects of Satan and sin. 
doing and thinking what pleases him and is opposed to God and his commandments. It was the gospel, the gospel that liberated. So he says, and it is true that the doctrine of the gospel takes all glory and wisdom, righteousness from men and ascribes them to the creator alone who makes everything out of nothing. So prayer is probably the clearest act of the soul by which we reflect the truth of our own condition of bondage, the truth of divine grace, and the necessity of help in opening the scriptures for our people. Prayer. So brothers and sisters, as you beat upon the place in Scripture, say, it must yield. Despair that it will ever yield to your reason. Use it despairingly and cry to God, I am in bondage without you. Deliver me from anything that would stand between me and a right grasp of the Scriptures and a rightly being grasped by the Scriptures, O God. Because when you study like that and then preach like that, God will get the glory and you will get the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, That's the upshot of the Reformation that Calvin and Luther would be happy for me to end on. That you get the glory and we get the help. We would not reverse roles with you here. We don't give you the help. You don't give us the glory. You get the glory. We get the help. And we would have it no other way. We would be debtors to grace for all eternity. Lord, help us to preach the word and to beat importunately upon it until it yield its riches and becomes for us and for our people a pathway into paradise. Through Christ I pray.